The origin of life, you will never hear two people say the same thing about it. It's, um, it really is a black hole. And it's not at the center of biology so much at the center of science because there is no subject which, it seems to me, which, which calls on so many different sciences, not just different disciplines, but this is a convergence of physics and geology and chemistry and biology uh, and cosmology. Um, you know, these are, these are whole subjects with, with hundreds of years of their own approach to asking questions. And they tend to collide in this field, and it tends to mean that biologists will think like a biologist and struggle to think like a chemist. And it's one thing I would say most people in the field are not particularly good at, is, um, is trying to think like a scientist rather than bringing their, their own discipline in. So this is, I have to say up front, a biologist's perspective. Um, but I, I, have, I do go out of my way to try and, um, to try and <laughs> embrace the ideas of physics and chemistry and so from, from a biologist's perspective. Ironic, really, that as soon as you think about the origin of life, you're faced with the question, well, what is life anyway? And probably the, the, the best framing of this question, the most famous framing of this question, came from a physicist, Erwin Schrödinger, in a series of lectures that he gave in Dublin in 1943, uh, which became a book in 1944, uh, entitled What is Life? So 75 years ago this year. And in that book, there were roughly two major themes, one of which was genes um, and, and uh, information theory. And this was during the war, and um, codes and cryptography was uh, very much at the center of people's thinking at that time, but mostly not in biology. Schrodinger was the first person to introduce the word code script into biology. His thinking influenced Crick and Watson and, and, and the idea of DNA, uh, the double helix as a code of life. It was the first time that people started talking in those terms. But he also talked about entropy. This was a major theme of this book. And there's a, there's a quote um, which seems to me much more archaic in its language. So he talks about life feeds on negative entropy, the device by which an organism maintains itself stationary at a fairly high level of orderliness really consists in continually sucking orderliness from its environment. Now, I really have no idea what he actually meant by that. I mean, <laughs> I know what he's getting at, but which bit of a cell is sucking orderliness from the environment and what actually is this thing, orderliness? He had a footnote, and in that footnote, in the second edition, I understand, the footnote said, if I had been catering for physicists alone, I should have let the discussion turn on free energy instead. Uh, and I think a lot of people rather wished that he had done that. Free energy, although he said it's complex, and I'm sure it is complex, uh, seems to me easier to understand than entropy. Um, so free energy is the is the energy available to power work in simple terms. Uh, so, for example, muscle contraction or something like that. All our energy, in our own case, comes from burning food in respiration, uh, in oxygen. Uh, what we're doing in that, apart from generating heat, which is increasing entropy, is we're conserving some of the energy that's released in the form of a molecule called ATP, which is this thing down here. It's one of these structures that goes back very far in life, it's possible, it's, this, this kind of thing can form by prebiotic chemistry, rather surprisingly. It's quite a complex molecule, but it's made of bits. So this is a ribose sugar here. This is the, the purine base, adenosine, and these are phosphate groups. So it's kind of Lego bricks. That's the easiest way to see it. And we are 
turning over. We're just lopping off this last phosphate here and then sticking it back on and lopping it off and sticking it on. We're turning over about our own body weight in ATP every day. That's the kind of the energy requirements just for living, just for sitting around. But that's not very helpful in the sense that we're not actually completely synthesizing it from scratch. A, a, probably a, a more useful way of seeing it, and one which will be more relevant later in this talk, um, is a, an ancient process called methanogenesis, which is, which is uh, how some bacteria, or specifically archaea, live. They, they react carbon dioxide with hydrogen to form methane, hence this term methanogenesis, producing methane, and water. And they, they get basically all the energy and all the carbon, all the organic carbon that they need to grow from that reaction alone. They don't need anything else. But they produce 16 grams of methane and 36 grams of water for every 1.3 grams of cell. In other words, their waste products are about 40 times the mass, and now we really are talking in the equivalent mass, uh, compared to the mass of a cell. So they've got this tremendous turnover of energy and waste products um, just to make a small amount of extra cell. So we could see from that point of view, life is a, you could almost say it's a side reaction of a main exothermic reaction, exothermic being a reaction that releases heat and increases entropy. That's what happens today, 40 times excess mass of waste product compared to the mass of a cell being produced. But at the origin of life, it becomes quite an interesting question because where before there were genes, before there were enzymes or biological catalysts of any, of any sort. Uh, and so there must have been a lot of dissipation. A particular reaction that now goes smoothly in one particular direction then must have dissipated in all kinds of different directions or just not happened at all. So to have a particular reaction which is going to double the mass of a particular product is going to involve a lot more dissipation then than it does now. Um, did I just do that or did that just happen? <laughs> So there must have been even greater flux through some kind of exothermic reaction at the origin of life uh, to support the doubling of organic matter than there is today. So what was it? Can we get at this question? Well, you're probably all familiar with this. Uh, this is the Milliori experiment from 1953. Uh, and this is Stanley Miller as an earnest-looking uh, PhD student uh, with his apparatus. So what he'd got was a series of really glass flasks which he filled with gases like methane and ammonia and hydrogen and he passed electrical discharges through it to simulate lightning. So the idea was that these gases were similar to the atmosphere of Jupiter um, and, by, by, and, and the discharges were, were equivalent to lightning and, and remarkably he um, collected a series of amino acids, the building blocks of proteins which at the time were really thought to be the building blocks of life. Uh, so it, this was on the front page of Time magazine in 1953. It was a big deal. It was a much bigger deal, in fact, at that time than the, uh, the DNA double helix, which was also published uh, by Crick and Watson in 1953. Uh, and very often, as the media does, they like to picture people next to their equipment. Uh, and so they kept on picturing uh, poor old Stanley Miller uh, next to his glass flasks, looking more and more fed up and... <laughs> wearied by the media as he, as he, went, went, uh, as he, as he gradually got older. Now, there were, there were two things about the Milliori experiment, really, that were important. One of them, this was the first steps in experimental work on the origin of life. Uh, there have been proposals from, from Oprin, for example, Haldane, people like that, ideas about how the origin of life might have started, but this was the first time anyone did a proper experiment. 
there was a hypothesis that the atmosphere of the Earth was going, would have been like Jupiter, that there would have been lightning flashes, that there would have been UV radiation, volcanic eruptions, putting more of these gases into the atmosphere, and that those conditions should produce the building blocks of life. It's a beautiful conception, it's a beautiful experiment, and what would you get from it? Well, what you get from it would be what uh, is often called a primordial soup. So you make these amino acids and they just build up in, in the oceans on the early Earth. And somehow they will kind of congeal together and eventually turn into a cell. Uh, it can, doesn't really work for me as an idea, that. Um, this idea of the primordial soup is very easy to make gentle fun of it, but there are some serious problems. I mean, first of all, there is no evidence that it ever existed. So it's very, very difficult to work out what gases were in the atmosphere four billion years ago. It's a really difficult question in science. But so far as we can tell, probably it was mostly nitrogen and carbon dioxide, and probably there was very little in the way of methane and ammonia and hydrogen. We don't know for sure, but that's what most geologists would now more or less agree. An ocean, this troubled Miller a lot himself, an ocean is, is a massive volume. If you start accumulating amino acids or, or, or organic molecules in an ocean, well, they're going to be a very, very dilute soup. So he spent a lot of his life trying to work out, well, how could we make this soup more concentrated? And he had various ideas. Perhaps the soup was on land. Perhaps it was frozen. Perhaps the poles and, and, and ice will tend to concentrate molecules. So there's, there are possible explanations, but none of them quite persuade. Uh, another problem with the soup is that it's, it's almost by definition high entropy. It's a chaotic mess of molecules none of, without many interactions between them. Um, so life, as Schrodinger said, appears to be at least a low entropy state. It appears to be organized and ordered, whereas a soup appears to be anything but that. So how do you generate order from a soup? Um, it's a difficult question. And I say here there's no thermodynamic driving force. Um, UV radiation is a thermodynamic driving force, but it tends to break things down just as easily as it will, will, will uh, make new organic molecules. So there are difficulties with this whole idea. And there is really no love lost between the people involved in this field. So this is a guy called Gunter Wechstershäuser, and I like to show this slide to my students when they first come to UCL. Um, in case they think that science is in some way dispassionate, um, he says, uh, the prebiotic broth theory has received devastating criticism for being logically paradoxical, incompatible with thermodynamics, chemically and geochemically implausible, discontinuous with biology and biochemistry, and experimentally refuted. Um, so you can see why Stanley Miller looked so pissed off towards the end of his life. He could give as good as he got, and, and there, was, there was twos and pros in the letters uh, pages of the journals, um, and, and there really isn't a, a, a clear answer as to who is right or who is wrong. Wechstershäuser was certainly too strong in his criticisms, but he had a point. The environment that he favoured is, is uh, known as black smokers or volcanic environments more generally. Uh, and these were discovered in 1978, so not so very long ago, and they are an extraordinary environment. Uh, these are what you would say far from equilibrium. In other words, it's continuously reactive. You've got chemicals of one sort, hydrogen sulfide, for example, coming into an ocean which is relatively oxidizing, full of oxygen. They will react. They will react continuously, um, and, and those reactions power the life 
that is around them. And the, the, the density of life in these, in these systems at the bottom of the ocean, maybe you can be five kilometers down at the bottom of the ocean, inky blackness, but this is the same density of life as a tropical rainforest. It's extraordinary. Um, I lost a tin of primordial soup down there when I put this uh, slide together, and I, I left it in because it does look inconsequential in comparison with these titanic forces of the Earth, which, uh, which potentially could be driving, a lot of people think, the origin of life. But there is a problem with that idea too, uh, which is that it depends on the sun. Even if it's down at the bottom of the ocean in inky blackness, that reaction between the hydrogen sulfide coming out of the vents and the oxygen in the oceans is what's powering all that life down there. And the oxygen in the oceans comes from photosynthesis, almost all of it. There is some oxygen formed by splitting water, but trace amounts, and it would probably disappear very, very quickly. So again, the geologists can agree about this. There's not many things that geologists agree about, but this is one of the things that they do. Um, so there was almost no oxygen back then, in which case all the life down there depends on life itself and depends on the sun. Uh, and so he can't give an insight into how life originated before all of that. So Wechsleshäuser knew that. Uh, he actually had a paper entitled Life as We Don't Know It. Uh, and, and, and this was a revolutionary ideas from the late 80s, early 1990s, uh, where he was talking about an iron-sulfur world. And this is an iron-sulfur mineral that you'll, most people will be familiar with, iron pyrites or fool's gold. And these were what he was talking about, fool's gold, um, carbon monoxide, hydrogen sulfide. These were his ingredients for the origin of life. And, and it's hard to really imagine that something more different to life as we know it. In fact, there's lots of bacteria that do live from carbon monoxide or from, from hydrogen sulfide and so on. It's just very different to life as we think of it in the nice, clean, oxygenated upper oceans and, 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 and land. But it leads me into a, a problem that I have now as a biologist. There's been really, I, I've only touched on some of the more famous examples, but there's been a lot of beautiful chemistry prebiotic chemistry done over decades going back to the Miller-Urey experiment in 1953. Uh, and more recently, from John Sutherland and Matt Powner, who's, who's at UCL, where I am, um, talk of what they, they call a, 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 a cyanosulfidic proto-metabolism, um, which is to say you start with cyanide and you start with hydrogen sulfide and UV radiation, and you're able to make a lot of the organic molecules, including the nucleotides, the building blocks for DNA, at least some of them that way. So this is chemistry that's been strikingly successful over the last 10 years or so. And you might think then, well, they've solved the problem. I, I think they think they've solved the problem and wonder why I give them a hard time about it. Uh, and perhaps they're right. Perhaps I'm just wrong about this. But to me, there's something that looks unbiological. That's, a, that's, a, that's really my perception as a biologist. I, don't, I think of cyanide as a poison that's going to kill cells rather than as a starting point. I think of UV radiation, again, as something which is destructive, which tends to uh, cause mutations in DNA and break things down. Um, cyanoacetylene, formamide, zinc sulfide, these are all things that I don't associate with life. Now, maybe I simply don't know enough about life, or maybe there's more than one way of doing making these molecules. So this is the problem that I have. It looks to me like, I would say, Frankenstein chemistry. It looks like unnatural chemistry, chemistry that we don't associate with life. Um, 
So there's no resemblance between this prebiotic chemistry and biochemistry as I know it as a biochemist. And I find that troubling. I think at the very least it means that if life did start that way with UV radiation and cyanide and makes all the building blocks for life, then once life gets going it has to reinvent everything all, all from scratch to produce life as we know it. So even if this is correct, it's not producing life as we know it. And so there's still a problem, it seems to me, that needs to be solved there. I won't go through this list, but it's just an indication that pretty much everything which is in the literature um, doesn't look much like life as we know it. And the reason for that is that life as we know it starts mostly with hydrogen and CO2, and they are almost inert. From a chemist's point of view, you try and get them to react in the lab under prebiotic conditions, and they just don't. They just sit there and do nothing, and it's really, really frustrating as a chemist. And I know this because I've been trying to do it for 10 years as well, and it's, um, it's very frustrating if it doesn't work. You might say it's not science. So how can we rethink the question? Um, there's, a, I think, a very nice approach from Christian de Duve, um, who uh, won the Nobel Prize uh, in, in, in medicine and, or physiology, um, not for his thoughts on the origin of life, but for his, for his work on the biochemistry of cells and, and specifically on lysosomes. Um, but he asked this question, how did proto-metabolism come to be replaced by metabolism? And he says the obvious answer to this question is that the appearance of catalysts, whether ribozymes or protein enzymes or both, was responsible for the, for the transition. But we then have to ask, how did catalysts with the appropriate properties appear? Why would an enzyme catalyze this particular reaction rather than any other random reaction? Well, he says the only scientifically plausible explanation, he was raised as a Catholic and presumably there was saying, if we assume God didn't do it, the only scientifically plausible explanation is that the catalysts arose through selection. Well, I agree with him. But then the interesting corollary to that is that enzymes are selected only if they fit into proto-metabolism. In other words, if you have a particular flux, a geological flux of reactions and reactants, and an enzyme or a, or a better catalyst begins to improve that flux one way or a different way, then it will tend to get selected in, in whatever the context is. In other words, there's already underpinning the biochemistry of cells, you already have the same pathways there which are somehow favoured thermodynamically and the enzymes as life selects them simply increases that flux through. So we're looking then at something I find more congenial, at turning geochemistry into biochemistry, at going from the chemistry of the planet itself into the chemistry of life. So the first question then, from my point of view, with uh, an interest in energy flow, is, uh, well, is there some universal form? Is there something we can say about life that points to a particular environment, to a particular universal form that we can say, well, how, how did biology get there from here? And the answer is yes. It's the use of ion gradients, which is to say charged, charged atoms or protons very often, which is the, the nucleus of hydrogen atoms, over membranes to power growth. So I just like to call them proton gradients. All that's to say is there's a lot of protons on one side of a membrane and relatively few on the other side. So there's a difference in concentration between the two sides. They are as universal across life as the genetic code itself. They're really important to the way that cells work. And it's because they're complex, it's difficult to say, well, they must be ancient. But it's also possible that they are. So here's how they work. This is what's happening in you right now. These are your mitochondria. These membranes here in the middle are the Christie membranes of the mitochondria where respiration is taking place, where you're burning food in oxygen. 
And this is roughly what's going on. This bar across the bottom is supposed to symbolize these membranes inside here. We're stripping electrons from food, and they're passing down inside the membrane. These are giant proteins. I know I, I'm not good at PowerPoint, so this is my best job as a giant protein. Um, we have a flow of electrons, a current of electrons, to oxygen um, to form water. And that current of electrons is linked with the extrusion of protons across this membrane. So we have lots of protons on this side, relatively few on that side. And here we have a kind of turbine, the ATP synthase, and protons are flowing through this and uh, driving the synthesis of ATP, this energy currency that I mentioned earlier on. It's very simple to conceptualize as a, as a hydroelectric scheme where the protons are like the reservoir, uh, the, the dam is like the membrane itself, and then the turbine that I mentioned, the ATP synthase, well, that's like the, um, well, it is like a turbine. It's an extraordinary molecular device. This is a rotating motor protein. Um, it, it's, it, it's certainly, to my eye, a product of genes and natural selection. I don't think that God put it there. Some people may disagree with me. Um, but it's certainly not something that just appears out of nothing. This is something which is, is a product of some form of selection, of some form of improvement. And so it cannot by itself give us an insight into the origin of life. But the fact that it's universally conserved across all of life says something about the conditions in which it emerged uh, and, and what, we, what we need to try to explain. So this idea that I've just been talking about, um, proton gradients across membranes, it was put forward initially by Peter Mitchell. This is Peter Mitchell and Jennifer Moyle. Uh, so Jennifer Moyle was a lifelong collaborator with Peter Mitchell. Um, she did a lot of the experiments. She was a very, very gifted experimentalist. Mitchell was cack-handed in the lab but was a, a brilliant thinker. Uh, he, he really reconceptualized the way that, uh, that, that anybody thought about these questions. And there's a lovely, there's, there's, there's a lovely quote uh, from Mitchell, who was at a conference organized by Operin in Moscow in 1957. Um, and it was the, the people who were there, uh, there were a few leading figures from Britain who were there. JBS Haldane was there, JD Bernal was there. Uh, and the thing that they had in common was that they were all communists. Uh, and, and therefore, for that reason, interested in a materialistic explanation for the origin of life, not just accepting the idea that there's some kind of spiritual explanation for it. Mitchell was not really much of a communist. He used to drive a silver Rolls Royce around in Cambridge during the Second World War, I'm told. Um, he was quite a philosophically minded fellow as well. Uh, and, but this quote is lovely. He said, I cannot consider the organism... And when, when he says organism, think of bacteria, don't think of a human being or something. Can't consider the organism without its environment. From a formal point of view, the two may be regarded as equivalent phases between which dynamic contact is maintained by the membranes that separate and link them. So he's having the outside and the inside of the cell as equivalent phases. He's drawing the inorganic environment into the definition of life almost here, which is unusual. And it's separated by a membrane. It's separated and linked by that membrane with the passage of things across that membrane. I find that a far more constructive way of seeing the origin of life. Very often a problem with seeing the origin of life is that we try and define life as opposed to the environment. And here he's seeing life and the environment as necessary partners. And this is roughly what he had in mind as I understand it. Um, he made a, a wonderful leap. 
he wondered really how do bacteria keep their insides different to their outsides. Uh, and if we think in terms of protons, but this would apply to any molecule at all, um, they, cells have a low proton concentration, relatively high hydroxides in, inside and relatively high outside, and it's achieved by pumping them out. And you would want to pump out waste and you'd want to bring in food and so on. Everything that you're doing has to go across that membrane. And you have to find it, you have to select it, and you have to bring it in actively or pump it out actively. So it costs energy to do all of this stuff. And he realised, well, if it costs energy to pump protons or whatever it is out of the cell, then in principle you could conserve energy by allowing them to flow in again. So it's a very, very simple concept. And, and his genius lay in realising that the way that bacteria keep their inside different to their outside could explain human respiration. It was the, the, the link was with the mitochondria, which were bacteria once, uh, which do respiration in ourselves. So it was, a, it was one of these wonderful sideways leaps that, 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 that visionary scientists do, and the rest of us just remain stuck to the floor. So this is an ancient, an ancient process. Um, the methanogens in cows, they're well known as a contributing factor to global warming and so on. Apparently the methane comes out through their, their mouth, uh, but I just like that picture. Uh, <laughs> So I've shown you this reaction already. Carbon dioxide and hydrogen react to form methane and water and produce some energy. But they don't react very easily. If we could figure out a way of getting them to react, we could solve several serious problems. We can take CO2 from the atmosphere um, and convert it into something equivalent to natural gas or synthetic gasoline or whatever it was, synthetic uh, petrol or whatever, whatever it may be. So we can solve global warming, or at least we, it will be carbon neutral, and it would solve a lot of energy insecurity. So there's a lot of people trying to do this reaction, and I think that people are on the point of succeeding now, but it's not an easy reaction to do. But methanogens live from that reaction alone, and they do it extremely efficiently. But to do it, they need a proton gradient. Now, I'm not going to go through this in any detail, but this is some really pioneering work from the last decade or so, from Wolfgang Buckel and Rolf Tower. We now know, as a result of their work, how these methanogens do it. And what they're doing is they're taking the pair of electrons from hydrogen and they're, they're, they're coupling. This is a really straightforward exothermic reaction that releases energy and uh, heat. And this, this is, uh, this is a, a difficult reaction, which is not going to happen spontaneously. So one is coupled to the other so that this happens and it forces that one to happen. So it's a, it's a very neat trick. This is pyridoxine, which is an iron sulfur protein. It Will, will convert CO2 into an organic molecule, a methyl group here. It's then passed from one cofactor onto another cofactor. It picks up the electrons from here again, and it's released as methane. Don't worry about the details. All you need to take away from that is this goes round and round and round and round and round, and it just pumps out methane. And the only thing that's conserved is this, the proton gradient across a membrane. So none of this is organic matter is actually conserved. That's a waste product. So what's conserved is, is just a proton gradient across a membrane. So why do they want that? Well, they want to do this. And this is a, this is a, a key protein here. This is the energy-converting hydrogenase. I've mentioned the ATP synthase. That's here as well. They also need that. But it's possible to work out ways why they might not need that. So we could probably eliminate all this bit, just say it's too complicated for the origin of life, but maybe this bit is more fundamental and more easy to understand. Um, 
because this is a relatively simple protein, it's an iron sulfur protein as well, which is to say it's got a little mineral cluster at the heart of it of iron and sulfur atoms, right at the heart of it. And that uses this proton gradient, so protons come through it um, to, to fix carbon dioxide as organic molecules and drive uh, metabolism. So let me just go back there a moment. You don't need a pump. You don't need to generate this gradient if you're already in an environment where there's a natural gradient. So perhaps we can cut a lot of, a lot of complexity out here by saying, well, methanogens have got all this complex equipment here just to make a gradient, then they use it to do some chemistry, which is relatively simple chemistry. If you're in an environment where you already have a proton gradient, perhaps you can use that to drive this relatively simple chemistry. That's a, a possibility. Well, there are environments like that. Uh, and this is perhaps the most famous one. It was discovered by Deb Kelly uh, nearly 20 years ago now in, in the year 2000. It's known as Lost City uh, Vent Field. Uh, and it's just off the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Um, and it doesn't look much like the black smokers that I showed you earlier on. It's, 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 a, it's a white non-smoker, you might say. There's no smoke coming out of here. They, they look like Gothic turrets on a cathedral. They're, they're, they're beautiful. Um, this is an actively venting system uh, but you don't see it's you don't you don't see the life around there's lots of bacteria there's lots of archaea there um, but you don't see the animals in the same way and it's partly because it's living from just hydrogen and co2 hydrogen sulfide makes everything much easier hydrogen is generally a bit more difficult to deal with but this is a system which almost certainly would have been much more abundant on the early earth than it is now and it was predicted to exist 10 years before its discovery by this guy called mike russell um, and, and he became famous, really, after, after the discovery of Lost City. Um, and this was a depiction by Nature in the year 2006, if I remember rightly, where they dressed him up as, as Erasmus, as a Renaissance man, and, and called him Naissance Man, Naissance as in the birth of life. Um, and this is a bit of Lost City vent behind him. This is his reactor at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Uh, and, and this is a section through it. And, and really what he was arguing is that there would be hydrothermal fluids wending their way through this, this network of pores. And those fluids would be alkaline, which is to say full of hydroxide ions, and rich in hydrogen gas. That's just from the chemistry of these systems. So we'd have hydrogen percolating in alkaline through, his, through those pores. We'd also have ocean waters coming in and through these pores as well. And those ocean waters, certainly four billion years ago, would have had a lot more CO2 in them, and so it would have been relatively acidic compared to today. And these barriers themselves, in the absence of oxygen at the origin of life, should have had a lot more iron in them. So these would have been relatively reactive catalytic walls. And so you can see this as a, as a kind of electrochemical flow reactor, um, which is a very nice way of seeing a system which is continually feeding reactive fluids through a catalytic porous network. Um, and potentially driving their reaction from the structure of the network. This is what I showed you already, the structure of a cell with protons coming in. And this is roughly what the structure of these pores, I would like to imagine they might look like. Nobody's really ever shown that it's exactly like this because it's not easy to get at these places. They're three kilometers down at the bottom of the ocean. But we know that there's alkaline fluids inside. We know that there's relatively acidic ocean waters outside. I think of this as a pore inside, in the middle of the vent. And here is a, a, an inorganic barrier 
much, much thicker than an organic membrane, but nonetheless, it's about three or four pH units difference between here and here, and it's about the same uh, between here and here. So it's got the same polarity, and it's got the same magnitude as a modern cell. And now I have to look at myself and say, well, okay, am I, am I seeing, you know, <laughs> the face of the queen in the cloud or something? Am I, am I just imagining things that don't exist, really? Am I deluding myself as a scientist? Or can I think of a pathway to go from a purely inorganic uh, setup like this to something organic like a cell? Well, the key, I think, is in this protein that I've shown you already. This, again, is what I showed you before. This is the energy-converting hydrogenase, and this is a schematic of what it really looks like. So I won't go into the details, but it's taking the electrons from hydrogen and it's passing them on to ferrodoxin, which is this iron-sulfur protein. And the values here, this just is... <coughs> this minus 300 millivolts is... It's technically known as the reduction potential, but it's a, it's a measure of how much hydrogen wants to push its electrons onto something else. And minus 300, well, it's, it quite wants to push its electrons onto something else, but not that much. This is minus 500 millivolts of ferrodoxin. That wants to push its electrons far harder onto other things. But this reaction is going this way, not the other way. It should be running that way, but it's, it's actually going from hydrogen. Electrons are flowing from hydrogen to ferrodoxin. The reason they're doing it is because you have this inflow of protons coming through here, past these iron-sulfur clusters here. That structure, I think, is telling, telling us a great deal. I should also say, in case you think that I'm being really um, abstruse, that this is the structure of a bacterial respiratory protein. And we have these exactly the same things, but with a few more globs on them, uh, in our own mitochondria. And, and this red bit here and here are exactly the same as this bit that methanogens are using. So the, the, the cells that are living ancient... Archaea living in deep sea hydrothermal vents or sometimes in the intestines of cows or indeed your own intestines are using a membrane protein uh, which we still use in our own mitochondria. This is just one of the lovely links between things in life that you see as a, as a biochemist that there, there really are uh, deep, deep um, parallel, well not parallels, this has been built on to that. It's very clear that it's almost like archaeology. We, we can read the past by seeing what's been built onto it. This is how it might work. So this is what I just showed you a moment ago. Hydrogen will not reduce CO2 to make organic molecules like formaldehyde. Well, this is the millivolts again, but all you really need to appreciate there is it's uphill. That's not going to happen spontaneously. You have to put energy in to make hydrogen uh, react with CO2, if it's at neutral pH or any other pH. But what we have in the vents, in these alkaline hydrothermal vents, is hydrogen at pH 11, and that changes its reactivity. Hydrogen is more reactive at pH 11. It wants to push its electrons more onto other things. And CO2 is in mildly acidic ocean waters, and, and that now wants to pick up those electrons more than it did here, for example. And so it's now a downhill reaction. So long as you've got hydrogen in alkaline solution and CO2 in acidic solution, uh, then they should react together. But of course, if you let them mix, then they're no longer in alkaline and acidic solutions, and you know how quickly they will react. If you remember titrating acids and alkalis in your mouth at school, for example, in chemistry lessons, uh, they fizz. Uh, it reacts immediately, and you end up with something like pH 7 and neutral. So somehow they have to be kept separate. Well, here's the importance of this structure in the vents. This is a little bit of what you saw before. 
here's where I imagine this is taking place, deep inside one of these vents with the seawater percolating in and the hydrothermal fluids through. We could have two channels. This is imagination, but it's, it's becoming structured imagination. In this channel, it's pH 6. Early oceans were more acidic uh, with carbon dioxide. Here we have a barrier. And here we have alkaline fluids, hydrothermal fluids with hydrogen. And this barrier, well, it could transmit electrons one way or protons the other way. We don't know what. Either way could work out. But what I think now is that these protons will come across this barrier. And just right here, we have a really steep edge where the pH shifts through about five or six pH units in very little space. Why would I say that? Well, what I just showed you is something which <clears throat> is conducive to doing an experiment. And we've been trying. We, we, built, uh, we built a big reactor initially and tried to make little hydrothermal vent structures inside it, and that didn't really work all that well. Uh, and we ended up building a microfluidic reactor, uh, which is just about a centimetre or two in, in, in length. Um, and we can precipitate uh, a, a kind of barrier between the two so we can have alkaline fluids on this side and acidic fluids on that side. We have continuous flow through and a barrier in the middle. And this shows you, uh, looking at it, that the yellow, yellowy colour is actually acidic, and so this is the alkaline channel, and that barrier looks acidic. So we looked at it more closely, and the barrier is always acidic. This is the barrier. You often get fluid inside the barrier, and it's yellow, which is the acid colour, and this is the alkaline channel, which is blue. And so we tend to always see that this gap between here and here, or between there and there, is 5 pH units in the space of around about 70 micrometres. So we have very steep gradients that way. And that's where we hope that chemistry will be happening. And we do see a little bit. I'm just giving you an indication of some of the results we've had. This is formaldehyde being formed, for example. Um, we see occasionally very small amounts of carbon monoxide. We get more formate, formic acid. Um, so we do, we do see things, but we don't see them as often as I would like to, and we don't see them in as reproducible a way as I would like to, and so I've never actually published this stuff um, until we've managed to really nail the system so it does the same thing every time. It's intrinsically uh, a little bit stochastic. Uh, it's, it's messy. You've got things precipitating in the system, and it's never quite the same way twice. The big problem with this, though, is really hydrogen gas does not dissolve at atmospheric pressure. Uh, and that's we need to pressurize this whole reactor and hope it doesn't explode. When we've, when we've got a through-flow pressurized reactor with hydrogen in it, then I hope that this will work. So <clears throat> we're still working on that, but you can't put all your efforts into one thing which you may not solve for five to ten years. Uh, you've got to do other things at the same time. And so we can think forward a little bit and say, okay, well, if we did make those organic molecules and we did make things like fatty acids, uh, they should, what we would expect them to do would be to line these these barriers, um, and gradually accumulate stuff. I mean, we're keeping the same polarity here. We're still keeping the same flow. And here we've got little iron sulfur clusters inside polypeptides. So no, no genes, no information. Here we're beginning to get cells with an ATP synthase. So these are steps. This is imagination. But it's important to think ahead and think, well, how can we go from here to here to here without any obvious gaps between them? And then we can think, well, can we test those steps somehow? Um, now, this is very complicated. I apologise. I'm, I'm not going to explain it in much detail, but it's, it's actually quite simple. It's just overcluttered. Here's a barrier. Here's a cell wedged in that barrier. On one side, we have sulphide. On the other side, we have ferrocyan. 
So they should form iron-sulfur minerals. But those iron-sulfur minerals, they should interact with organic molecules, and those like amino acids. And those organic molecules might make it, may prevent them from growing as much, prevent them from being lost as quickly, and more likely to associate with the membranes. This is, again, purely theoretical thinking about what we might expect to see. That's a positive feedback. So we have interactions between organic molecules and iron-sulfur clusters that would lead to something like a, a, a prototype version of an energy-converting hydrogenase in the membrane, an iron-sulfur cluster in a membrane. Okay. You can say it's make-believe. It is make-believe. We can show in the, in the inside a computer that it works, that we could get cells that are replicating in that way. The protocells get better at making copies of themselves. It's still imagination, but it can be tested. So the first, I mean, these are four questions, testable questions that emerge from it. I'm just going to finish in the last five minutes or so uh, with some, uh, some looking at some of these predictions. So can we make this vesicle? What we have here, what we're proposing here, is that on this side we have ocean fluids at pH 5 to 7, and here we've got alkaline fluids at 9, 10, 11 pH. So this vesicle would have to stand both of those two pHs otherwise. If we can't find a simple vesicle made from something as simple as fatty acids, then it already falls to pieces. And a lot of people say you'll never do that in a deep-sea hydrothermal vent. Can, do, do we see these interactions between minerals and, and, and organics like, uh, like, like amino acids? Um, if they do, will they associate with the membranes? And if they do associate with the membranes, can they drive the fixation of CO2? So these are four questions that we can address in the lab. And this is... Um, first one is, is do, what about these conditions? 70, 80 degrees... Um, pH 11 inside the vents, but the early oceans probably pH 5 or 6. Um, the oceans are full of ions, very lots of sodium chloride, of course, but also magnesium and calcium, which can interact with, with vesicles and effectively turn them to soap. Um, so, so these are the conditions we have to deal with. Can we make vesicles that work in those conditions? And the, the, the literature says, no, you can't do it, and we get the same thing. This, is, this steep bit here shows the range where you should get vesicles. Uh, and if you just use one fatty acid, the range where you can get vesicles, you probably can't quite see that, but it's basically between pH 7 and pH 7.1. It's a really, really narrow range. So if you go up to pH 8, they fall to pieces and you don't see anything at all. But if you have a simple mixture, and this is one of these interesting things about science, we like to be purist. We say, OK, we're going to take a single fatty acid, we're going to make a vesicle from it, and we're going to see if it holds up to some stress. And we use a single fatty acid because it's a pure system that you can control all the variables. But if you say, well, hang on a minute, the people who've made these things under prebiotic conditions actually get a mixture of at least 15 to 20 different chain-length fatty acids. What happens if we take a, you know, a representative selection of those and put them all together? And, well, the answer is, whoops, the answer is that this is beginning to broaden out and broaden out some more. And if we have a mixture of fatty acids with what are called fatty alcohols, so long-chain long chain hydrocarbons with an alcohol group on the end, then we get this peculiar mess here. And this peculiar mess actually says we should be getting vesicles everywhere and that really the difference between them is noise. And that is what we actually see. Um, when we do that, these are vesicles by cryo-electron microscopy uh, in modern ocean salinity with calcium ions, with magnesium ions, 70 degrees and pH 12 in this case. So these are quite robust vesicles that are perfectly happy 
in those conditions. We also see some crazy structures that I would not have imagined. So we, we see these long filaments here. And this is, um, this is using fluorescence microscopy. And this is using electron microscopy, so a completely different preparation method. And we see the same long stringy filaments. And when we look closer, this isn't a vacuum, so they've all burst, but these are strings of vesicles. So each of these is just a long chain of vesicles all joined up. So we're getting a lot of structure just from effectively mixing fatty acids with water under these conditions. You get structure for nothing under these conditions. And we can also get iron sulfur clusters. I thought when we started doing this experiment that we would plaster amino acids onto the surface of a growing mineral and interfere with its growth in some way. But what we actually found was something much more exciting, which is that above a certain th threshold, a certain value, which is quite a low value, as low as 3 millimolar cysteine, we spontaneously get iron sulfur clusters, exactly the same clusters that we see in our own cells today, in our own mitochondria, this kind of little cluster here. We see it from UV-vis spectroscopy, that's the shoulder there, this is a thing called Mossbauer spectroscopy, and it basically shows that we're getting the, exactly the same clusters that we see in our own cells just by having cysteine or methionine or even bicarbonate ions in solution uh, at usually alkaline pH. So that's delightful. It, it works far better than I imagined it could possibly have done. And this is more or less the final slide with any science in it. Um, this is the reduction potential, which is to say, how much does it want to push its electrons onto something else? And this is <coughs> with, with bicarbonate, and this is with, uh, with methionine, but all you see here is it's getting more negative as it comes down. As we're going to pH 11, then the reduction potential is down at minus 600. In other words, this, this idea that you can, you can modulate the reactivity, you can make hydrogen far more reactive by pushing it onto something, but you can also make these iron sulfur clusters far more reactive if you change the pH around them, which is what we see across the barrier. The pH is changing continually as the protons come running in. So again, in principle, this suggests that it can work. We're stuck now with this idea, can we associate them with the membranes? It's a difficult thing to do, and we're, we're still working on that. Can we fix CO2 that way? That reduction potential suggests maybe we can, but it's a little hard to know. So I'm going to stop with <clears throat> just a very short video, which just gives an indication of what this stuff is really like, uh, because it's, I, I, I like to think of this as a kind of mini disaster movie. These are the, the, the protocells here, lots of little vesicles, you can just see the holes in them, but we also get some quite complex structures, and they're moving around, and they all, there appears to be a flow going in this direction. And we get these peculiar, you know, again, there are, there, are, there are holes in the middle, so these are structures of cells. In fact, it looks like we've evolved broccoli before we really got any bacteria. Um, so we get quite a lot of structure here. It's, it's hard to know what, the, I think that's just probably just gunk over there, but we've got lots of individual protocell structures and then all this stuff, and it's running away from a bubble. <laughs> this is a giant air bubble on the microscope slide. That's, uh, that's why there was that flow. Okay, I'm going to stop there. All of this work pretty much has been done by people in the lab. That's, uh, that's always the case. All the work these days is done by students and postdocs, and they do a fantastic job. Uh, and uh, my group is a brave group because you're potentially sacrificing your career asking these questions. It's difficult to get much funding. It's difficult to uh, publish some of these papers. It's difficult to make it work at all. It's a big, bold question that the chances of it working are quite slight. So I'm very, very grateful uh, for, to, 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 to my people in my group for 
believing that these are questions that scientists should be addressing and, and, and risking the outset of their careers by, by going for it. And they've done some really beautiful work and, uh, and, and, and I think it should be a big round of applause for them. Thank you very much. <laughs>